The Virginia governor's race is coming to a close. The election is being held next Tuesday. It is the first major competitive election in the United States since President Biden took office. So clearly the eyes of the nation are on that state and Democrats and Republicans all across the country are looking to see which factors are driving the electorate and which party they're going to benefit, how those election results in Virginia uh, might reflect on President Biden, how they might reflect on former President Trump, and really especially what those results come Tuesday night might mean for the upcoming midterms all across the country next year. So this week, Politicon is excited to welcome David Byler from the Washington Post. David not only covers the Virginia gubernatorial race for the Post, but he is also the Washington Post's in-house guru when it comes to political statistics and trends. He's their data expert, their political Nostradamus, so to speak. I'll ask him uh, all about the race in Virginia and ask him what that might tell us about the state of American politics writ large. How has a state that was carried by Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, twice by Obama, and has voted for only one Republican governor in the past two and a half decades, how has that state become so closely contested all of a sudden? Are we reaching a point where political factions are so entrenched that the rumors of secession around the country may actually become reality? And if not, how the heck are we going to get along? Thank you very much for being with us. You've been, you're kind of coming down to the, you know, the final stage of your Virginia coverage for this gubernatorial race. Um, are you going to be happy to have it over um, and move on to something else? Or uh, do you enjoy the, the strangeness of being the only person covering a, a election right now? <laughs> uh, a little bit of both, I would say. You know, I think that some of the Virginia coverage, you know, since so many political reporters and so many people who work in politics live in D.C. or live in Virginia or live in Maryland, it's like all eyes are on this one race and you have a press corps that's, you know, big enough to cover a national election, zeroed in on one state. So there's something exciting about that, but there's also something a little bit tiring about it. So, you know, mixed feelings when we're done. Can you just explain, I mean, do they even have a reason why they do it in such a weird year? Is there is there an expl- I mean, explanation to why they're in an odd numbered year and no other state is? You know, it's a good question. I'm not sure what the exact origins are, but, you know, states get to set these things themselves. So Virginia and New Jersey are this year. And then you also have Louisiana and Kentucky that happen two years from now. And then most states actually do their governor elections in the midterm. So it's one of those federalism things where people are just all over the map. Okay, so then I've learned something else, too. And I guess I probably should have known Louisiana did theirs in a weird year, but uh, we don't hear about them often. I didn't realize New Jersey's was um, also this year, maybe because it's not nearly as competitive. Is that why the Virginia one people are paying attention to? That's right. That's right. I think that New Jersey, since it's a bluer state and people just expect it to go towards the Democrats, um, there's not as much attention paid to it as Virginia. And it's also a side effect of sort of Virginia being in the backyard of the entire, you know, political media industry. Uh, Virginia's there. New Jersey's a little bit further away. And yeah, I think also Virginia is just a more competitive state. That's part of why you don't hear about Kentucky. You don't hear about Louisiana as much. You you just have a state 
state that's competitive, that's one year after the presidential election, and everybody uses it as this thermometer to sort of see, okay, what are Americans thinking in this, you know, swingy, recently more blue state? Right. Okay. So I do want to talk about Virginia, but as you were saying that, I thought to myself, but wait a second. If I had to name two governors of the state of New Jersey, which, yes, we all know in a presidential year is uh, is solid blue, but if I had to name governors from New Jersey— I think the only ones I could think of would be Republicans, uh, Chris Christie and Christine Todd Whitman. So why is it that's—I mean, are, are states just becoming—to be able to say that a state like New Jersey is obviously going to go to the Democrat or is is strongly Democrat, when clearly in the past two decades that has not necessarily been the case in that state, has New Jersey just become— solidly blue no matter what? Are that is that how other states are becoming to where, you know, they vote the same way in the presidential election as they do in the gubernatorial de- election? Um, so that's p- question one. But the follow-up to that is, if that's the case, then why is the same not happening in Virginia? Right, right. Both great questions. So <laughs> on the first one, what you do see is that uh, sort of decrease in split ticket voting. People are saying, you know what, I'm a Republican or a Democrat on the presidential level. I'm going to go Republican or Democratic down the entire rest of the ticket. So, you know, yes, Chris Christie, he's a he's a big personality. He's a memorable governor. Um, but the most recent governor uh, or the current governor is Phil Murphy. He's a Democrat. He's been a little bit more lower profile. People expect him to win again. Uh, and you just see more of this sorting, sort of the Northeastern moderate Republicans that are, you know, fiscally conservative, but sort of more socially liberal. That's sort of a a breed of politician that's dying out a bit. They're they're having trouble surviving through primaries. They're having trouble sort of getting the Republican electorate behind them. And even if they get to the general election, sometimes Democratic voters are like, no, we just want a Democrat anyways. There are exceptions, but that's the general pattern. And you see the same thing with conservative Democrats in a lot of states. You know, Democrats who said, "Okay, we're going to, you know, give uh, more money to people. We're going to be fiscally liberal, but we're going to be socially moderate and socially conservative. A lot of those candidates, uh, even if they're getting nominated by state and local parties, are losing because Republican voters are saying, we just want Republicans. Now, why isn't that happening in Virginia is kind of the next uh, question. And that's there's a couple reasons for this. Um, One is that what we're seeing is this pendular swing. Right. This happens oftentimes after the presidential election. Uh, One party takes office this year. You know, it's the Democrats. Biden's in charge. Democrats have the House. They have the Senate. And uh, that means Democratic voters say, "Okay, we're going to get some of what we want. We're a little bit less excited. They turn out less. Republicans see Democrats in the news passing laws or at least trying to pass laws every single day. They get angry, they get excited, and they say, you know what, we're going to turn out. And independents usually say, whoever's in power, you know what, I think they're going just a little bit too far. So in a (laughs) state like Virginia, yeah, yeah, in a state like Virginia, what happens is those three factors sort of come together, and we've seen that blue movement, but that pendulum swing backwards is enough to make it competitive. So is this a, in Virginia, a referendum on... um, the current governor, Ralph Northam, or is it a referendum on Biden, or is it a referendum still on Trump? What, like, who, who are people voting for or against? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think depending on which side you talk to, you're going to get completely different answers on that. So if you talk to the Democratic side and you talk to McAuliffe and you hear how they're messaging, what they want to say is that Glenn Youngkin is Donald Trump in khakis. They want to say this is 2020 all over again. He supports all the same positions that Trump supports. That's kind of how they want to frame the race is this is 2020 all over again. And why wouldn't they want to frame the race that way? Democrats won Virginia by about 10 points in 2020. Uh, and, you know, Youngkin has adopted a number of Trump's positions. If you talk to sort of the Youngkin campaign, they're trying to do uh, this kind of balancing act. They're on this tightrope. Uh, they've taken some positions around vaccines, around, you know, education and critical race theory and what can and should and shouldn't be taught. They're taking these positions that are designed to appeal to Trump's base, but they've nominated Youngkin, who is this, you know, private equity executive. He sort of looks and sounds more like Mitt Romney than he does Donald Trump. And he's trying to say, okay, you know what? I want the old suburban Republicans and the new rural Republicans. I want them all sort of in one camp. And what this is about is the fact that Democrats in Virginia, you know, aren't doing a great job and Biden's approval is down. So who it's about is... It's that's kind of a question that the results are going to answer because you have these sides kind of talking out different realities, if that makes sense. Should if if it is this close in a state that has elected that that last elected a Democrat, Terry McAuliffe um, has also already been governor once in Virginia. They can only do it one time in a row. So he had to go away for a while. He's coming back. He's been elected to governor to the governor's mansion once. Um, they currently have a Democrat governor. They just uh, they, Hillary Clinton carried Virginia. Joe Biden carried Virginia, um, I believe. Obama carried Virginia both times he ran. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. Mm-hmm. Um, You're right. This is, this is not a state that Democrats should be as concerned about, at least looking at the map. Um, I believe the last Republican who was governor in Virginia uh, was convicted of something. Um, didn't have a, didn't have yeah. a great time uh, <laughs> towards the end there. So should Demo- what does it say about the Democrat Party in general that this is not as easy as the numbers suggest it should be. Right. So I think what you're hitting on here is a big reason why there's so much heat around this election right now. Um, I think that it's basically saying that Biden is losing people and that the patterns that happen to almost every president in their first term and even in their second term are still happening to Biden. Uh, Many people thought that because of the events of January 6th and because Trump is still, you know, politically active and making his voice heard and, you know, there's rumblings about him running again, that this time would be different. But really what we're seeing is that same sort of midterm and off-year recession. It means that some things about the Biden agenda are too much for, you know, uh, some more moderate voters. It means that, you know, there's still a little bit of wiggle room maybe, right? That if Republicans nominate someone like Youngkin, suburbanites who don't like Trump may still be able to say, okay, I feel like this guy's a little bit different, right? There's still a little bit of wiggle room, uh, even though straight ticket voting is sort of on the rise. Um, But yeah, I, I think this is this is part of the life cycle. Um, And it may also mean that the suburbs were uniquely allergic to Trump. And when other Republicans run, they're a little bit more competitive. But so what does it say, though, that that President Biden has come to the state to to help Terry McAuliffe in his campaign? Because when you think about um, 
the last Democrat president, uh, Barack Obama, he had he had higher approval ratings, arguably. Um, but a lot of candidates who were running in midterms, especially, sort of distanced themselves from him, especially in places where the where it was uh, uh, the races were closer. Um, there's not been a lot of distancing necessarily from Joe Biden when it comes to is that because Terry McAuliffe is just a you know devout party Democrat Party guy he used to chair the whole national committee or is it because Biden's numbers may be low but he himself is not unpopular how, how does that like the calculus there doesn't make any sense to me he's not doing well his approvals yeah. are down but we're still having him come in and help us yeah, yeah. I I've thought about this a little bit because it's it's interesting how they rolled it out too. Uh because you had the news break that the Obamas were going to c- campaign with McAuliffe first and then Jill Biden was announced, you know, before that and Stacey Abrams was announced before that and then Joe Biden was announced and he was sort of staying on the sidelines uh for a long time. My guess is that they're just pulling out all of the stops at this point. Uh, They think, you know what, he's unpopular, but he's the president. Let's get him out there. The other thing that's interesting is that the suburbs of Northern Virginia, um, which have been growing steadily and becoming bluer, are different than the suburbs of almost everywhere else because it's a it's a company town of the federal government. Um, you know, a lot of people are employed by the federal government or work in private businesses that are sort of, you know, entangled with that and use that as part of their business. And I think that that's part of the reason that maybe Biden is a little le- bit less toxic there than he might be Is that where he came to campaign else. with him? You know, that's a good question. I have to double check. Um, but this is one of the areas where, you know, and the the other thing about Biden is that he's also in his campaign sort of less toxic with rural voters than a lot of Democratic, uh, that a lot of other Democratic voters are. Um, he's somebody who, you know, managed to hold the line in a lot of rural areas. He won Pennsylvania. He won Wisconsin. So if I had to, to guess of why Biden, why now? That would be that. But it's such an interesting dynamic you're naming because the one other thing that I'll lodge in there is the shoe is kind of on the other foot. McAuliffe is running towards Biden, who's, you know, a Democratic president who's, you know, kind of struggling with his popularity. And Youngkin is running away from Trump as quickly as he possibly can. Um, He's, you know, not trying to not appear with Trump, trying to distance himself and it's uh, is he actively doing that? I mean, I I will plead great ignorance to the Virginia race. Um, so I was not aware until a producer told me a little bit ago that that you know there's is Trump coming to help out? Has Yunkin asked him not to? Has has McCall? I'm sure McAuliffe has asked him to please come. But but I mean, what what is the <laughs> what is the level of involvement from? former President Trump, and what is the level of enthusiasm to accept that involvement from Youngkin? Right, right, right. So Trump has endorsed Youngkin. He has made his support clear. Uh, You know, he said, this is my guy, this is my candidate. Um, And it was very interesting. I want to say a week or two ago, um, you know, Steve Bannon, one of sort of Trump's aides slash, you know, uh, sort of associates. And Trump had this big virtual rally uh, for Trump supporters. They had, you know, they had it in Virginia. Um, They were excited about it. And Youngkin was not there. Um, (laughs) And he's just put physical distance between himself uh, and the president at any opportunity. Uh, You know, there's always the chance that he kind of reverses it. But really, so far in the campaign, 
His strategy has been, you know, we're going to try to use the issues to keep the Trump fans on board, but we're not going to be close to Trump himself because we need those suburbanites. So, I mean, Virginia is sort of, I think a lot of people could see that people think of Virginia, they think like you're talking here about, you know, that state that's next to D.C. um, and and is so almost synonymous in in some ways with Northern Virginia being D.C. But you're talking about a Mm -hmm. big state, which in a lot of ways kind of hits every single, maybe it doesn't have the California uh, type voting voting demographic, but it really does hit almost every single other demographic. I think people think of Pennsylvania as being a little bit of a microcosm of America and parts of Illinois being, but Virginia almost is more so because it's not just that incredibly affluent Northern Virginia area, but you've got a very, very populated working class uh military friendly heavy area in the tidewater down in the the, the southeast mm-hmm. part of the state virginia beach is i think still the biggest city in in virginia um sort of gets overlooked because of <laughs> nobody thinks of it um you've got richmond right. which is government then you've got that whole you know wise county mountainous area that's a lot closer to the north carolina rural areas that i'm familiar with and then you know it is still virginia which is also very similar to West Virginia. I mean, you've got a lot of kind of mountainous coal industrial kind of uh, uh, mining communities in the far, far northwestern parts of the state. It's very much a microcosm of the country. So how, as you follow this story and you, and you, and you report on the, the governor's race there, how are you, are you able in any way to extrapolate what, Parts of which messages are playing to, you know, very rural southwestern Virginia versus southeastern Virginia versus that Joe Manchin type area up in the northwest. Um, how does how does it expand this out nationally? Because that's what everybody is watching it for, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I actually grew up in West Virginia, so the sort of Appalachian area of Virginia feels familiar whenever I've been there. It's a place that I'm thinking like, oh yeah, this is, you know, just like where I grew up. Uh, I think in that sort of region, that's where you're seeing some of Yunkin's most uh, sort of Trump-ish messaging land. Uh, His campaign has talked a lot about sort of the big critical race theory snafus that are happening. Uh, Youngkin, you know, it's it's an issue where, so earlier in the campaign, uh, McAuliffe had this gaffe where he said that he thinks that, you know, parents uh, shouldn't be deciding on right. the curriculum that their kids say and all this stuff. Uh, and so when you think about what Youngkin wants to project, he wants to project that sort of message there. The cultural stuff that Trump used to sort of drive up the margins in rural areas all across the country, um, that's sort of what they want there. Uh, one interesting way to think about the division in Virginia, um, somebody else was telling me to this uh, when 
when I was uh, writing a recent story on it, is that there's really sort of two Virginias. There's a Virginia that's sort of, you know, Southern and has been there for a long time and is rural and that exists in, you know, those rural counties you were talking about and some of the suburbs and things like that. And then there's a second Virginia, which is a Virginia of people who have moved in. And this is not just Northern Virginia. This is Richmond, like we were talking about. This is the whole Virginia Beach metro that we were talking about. People who have moved in uh, for a job, who are, you know, uh, some sort of white collar worker and have moved directly in and don't really you know, um, think of the rural areas as, as Virginia, the Virginia that they know and that they've experienced is in those major metro areas. And that you have in Virginia this sort of uh, cultural divide opening up between those two spaces. And one is not more or less legitimate than the other. You know, it's, it's it, everyone in Virginia is, is a Virginian. Um, but you have a situation where that sort of explains the bifurcated messaging. It explains why McAuliffe is talking about, you know, COVID and why he's talking about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, like um, Youngkin is just like Trump and so on and so forth. He's speaking to, you know, parts of Virginia that are different than other parts. And it's also, the last thing, uh, and definitely not least, it's important, Virginia is a state with a lot of diversity. If I'm remembering this correctly, uh, around one in five Virginians are African American. And so this is a huge voting block. And you're seeing this also with uh, McAuliffe bringing in Stacey Abrams, bringing in the Obamas, bringing in uh, people who are going to try to help him with turnout with black voters, because that's another group that he needs inside and outside the cities all across the state. Right. So, I mean, but but Virginia also has, in, in addition to its diversity, it's got a lot of kind of segregated geographic diversity. So a lot of the African-Americans right. in Virginia are Richmond, Petersburg, and yep. then to the southeast, and then southwest and northern Virginia is a lot whiter. Is McAuliffe doing anything to reach out to the voters uh, west of Richmond um, in the, you know, the Roanoke area, those kind of more conservative rural areas. Because interestingly, you know, I, I, I don't have the polls in front of me, but I think of the fact that there has been some polling done in West Virginia, especially because Joe Manchin's so integral to the budget bill that's being still thought about right now, um, that a lot of the economic policies um, that are being discussed within that bill are popular amongst West Virginian voters um, who are not necessarily Biden voters, but they, you know, apparently like Joe Manchin enough to keep sending him back. They'll vote for Donald Trump on the same ticket and they'll um, and they don't support Joe Biden, but they like some of the uh, some of the proposals within that, that Democrats are pushing. But as you, you know, pointed out damn well, culturally, those Buchanan County, Wise County, Dickerson County, far western Virginians are um, not listening. They're, they're very focused on the cultural thing. Have Democrats, has McAuliffe, have state delegate Democrats done any work at all in trying to, to win over some of those voters that arguably Biden won back some of those voters that Joe Manchin is still able to win? Um, or are Virginia Democrats just sort of saying, you know what, we're going to get the vote out in Petersburg and Norfolk and Northern Virginia and screw the Western people? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is such an interesting part about coalition politics. So the, the short answer to your question is um, yes. So part of the sort of McAuliffe pitch in his message is, remember when I was governor, remember, you know, the years uh, 2013 to 2017, uh, that was the Obama era. Like we did concrete things for you. The economy got better. Your bottom line was better. That's a time when we had growth, uh, you know, talking about expanding basically the social safety net in various ways. This is something that's sort of a part of McAuliffe's message. And it's it's such an interesting tension, right? It's exactly what you're naming, which is that uh, Democrats will say, you know, we want to sort of make life better for people who have lower incomes, who live in rural areas, so on and so forth, in a concrete economic sense. Uh, and at the same time, those voters are still saying, uh, yeah, but we're not on the same page with respect to cultural issues, with respect to immigration, with respect to abortion, with respect to, you know, you name the other issues. And it's it's that tug of war. And the the thing that I think is worth keeping an eye on is if you look in a county out there, if it's deeply red, but McAuliffe manages to shave off 3% or 5% or something like that, those are votes he doesn't have to get elsewhere. And that's what you're, you're seeing that on both sides too, you know, um, not only are the sides trying to maximize sort of in their bastions, they're just trying to shave a little bit off of the opponents, right? They're trying to get just a little bit more here and there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it will be turnout, right? I mean, it's going to be who shows up in this strangely. I mean, I assume people in Virginia are sick and tired of seeing TV um, ads and seeing political ads. But uh, who's more enthusiastic right now from what you can see? Are are people yeah. on the right more pumped to uh, show up to vote, to uh, to cast their vote for who Donald Trump told them to vote for? Or are people on the right? disenfranchised because Trump has said, you know, these elections are rigged, so boycott them. Are Democrats afraid of getting another Trump, so they're going to go and vote for McCall? Like, who's who's got the fire behind them right now? Yeah, right now, the current polling data uh, indicates some amount of greater enthusiasm on the Republican side. Um, and I think one thing that's interesting, uh, one of my, uh, you know, former bosses and mentors has said that, you know, when you sort of uh, strip away the policy positions for a second, like, you know, strip away what people are saying for a second and watch what it is that they are actually doing. And it really seems based on actions and who's coming to the state that Democrats really are worried about turnout. They're worried that, you know, people are, are that their voters are becoming complacent and they're worried that their voters are, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they're worried that their voters are not identifying Youngkin with Trump. I mean, you know, Virginia was a D plus 10 state a year ago. The fact that it's close at all now means that that turnout edge is favoring the Republicans. It's just a question of, is it enough? Is it, you know, how's it going to go? How does, how does the fact that, I mean, are, are Democrats disenfranchised because they feel like, well, we've got a Democrat in the White House and we got a Democrat Senate and a Democrat House and they haven't really done shit anyway. So, I mean, I'm <laughs> being hyperbolic here, yeah. but the, but how how important is it for President Biden and the Senate and the House to pass something this week before Tuesday to to, to show Virginia voters, 
hey, we're actually working. <laughs> I mean, does, yeah. do the national politics of that actually affect Virginia voters when it comes to the governor's race? So they just they're not related. Yeah, I think the national politics do affect. And uh, here's how I would frame it. I would frame it as more of a competence issue, right? Um, if Democrats or, and swing voters think of Biden and what's going on as sort of competent governance, uh, then they're happy and then things are more likely to go well for Democrats. If they think that the wheels are coming off, they think that, oh my gosh, these people can't do anything or get anything done, like, oh, geez. Uh, that's usually when things start to go bad. It's easy to forget this uh, because of just how things have changed over time. But at this time in Obama's presidency, when it was 2009 and Republicans were sort of, you know, just about to run up the score in the Virginia governor election, um, people really felt that Obama didn't, you know, that the wheels were coming off, that he was, you know, trying to get the ACA passed, but he was struggling with all the Democrats in Congress. And, you know, uh, was the individual mandate going to happen? And was the public option going to happen? And it was, it was chaotic in that moment. And so I think chaos in governing is what makes it hard for the White House to hold on to power. Um, in terms of whether you need to push back, uh, push build back better, that's a hard question because there are some historical examples where a president really fails to uh, push their policies through and then they get punished for it. And there's some where they succeed in pushing their policies through and then they get punished for it. You know, Bill Clinton in 1993, his big health care push failed. In 1994, the Democrats got really beat up. In, you know, 2009, like we we're just talking about, you know, Obama is doing health care. He finally gets it passed uh, in 2010, if I remember correct. And Democrats still get beat in 2010. So it's it's just hard to avoid that off year penalty. Um, but the through line there is that when people think the wheels are coming off and think that competence is at a low, that's when you lose the swing voters. That's when the Democrats get demoralized. You know, that's when they say, okay, well, we voted for this, but, you know, seems like it's not going great. And they get less motivated. And the Republicans say, oh, this is really not going great. And they turn out. And it's just this cycle happened to Trump, happened to Bush, happens to almost everyone. So it sounds like it's an, it's, it sounds like it's inevitable for the Democrats to lose seats in, in 2022. Um, and given that Democrats don't really have much of a margin in either the House nor the Senate. Um, <laughs> probably not going to be a great year for him. I, I, I can't help. I, I'm, I'm curious because I, I live in a state where the, where the gubernatorial election is always the same year as the presidential election. So mm -hmm. all the focus tends to be on the presidential election. Um, and I don't get to see a gubernatorial election in the clear, so to speak. Our politics, and I don't mean, I, I, I'm trying to be as thoughtful with this as possible. I don't, I, I don't want to, yeah. are politics just as nasty on the state level as they are on the national level? And, and I, I, I say that because I know they're always nasty everywhere. It's always, it's, everybody acts like they're in, in kindergarten. Um, so I get that they're always nasty, but the national dialogue is so inundated with people on one cable news network shilling for one party, it seems, and on another cable news network shilling for another party, um, that there's no such thing as thoughtful deliberation about who's the best for me when it comes to choosing who I'm going to vote for for president. Local news 
at least where in North Carolina, maybe because we're too busy paying attention to the national race, doesn't tend to be as, you know, opinion driven. Um, is, is, is this a proxy in Virginia for how national races go? Or is there a bit more civility at the state level um, with gubernatorial races? It's an interesting opportunity that you get to to look at politics without necessarily having to have that Senate race on the same ticket or those House races on the same ticket or the presidential race on the same ticket. Do people behave differently when the uh, when the lawyers aren't in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, I, I feel like I'm being so, you know, uh, I don't know, fatalistic at times. This conversation so far, um, you know, there there are a couple a couple moments in history where that midterm penalty gets reversed and where things are different. And there are some races, you know. I, I remember uh, last time around in the Utah governor race, the two candidates took out an ad together talking about, right. you know, we really want to agree constructively. We want to do this better. And in some cases, where you have that rare blue state Republican or where you have that rare red state Democrat. You see a difference in what the rhetoric. Granted, I don't think the Democrat who was Um, running for governor in Utah had a snowball's chance in hell, and he probably knew that. (laughs) So (laughs) he made himself. He did. He made. He made a a point to make a statement instead. But, but are they nicer here at the state level than they are nationally, or no? I I mean, this is. uh, It is. It is hard to be meaner than it is on the national level. But one one trend that we're seeing that I think affects a lot of why people feel so bad about politics is the decline of local news. It's the decline of a state focus. A lot of local news outlets are going out of business. Uh, they don't have you know a funding model that can work. A hedge fund maybe buys them up and sort of rips the whole thing apart. Um, and uh, you have this uh, sort of increase in stakes of national elections too. People feel this existential dread. And I think that filters down to other races too. They feel, oh my God, you know, whoever wins the presidency, it has these huge consequences. And so then they think, oh geez, I better give my, you know, presidential candidate allies in the Senate, allies in the House. Well, I, you know, definitely want the gubernatorial candidate to govern like my, you know, favorite presidential candidate. And they just go tick down, 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 down the ballot the same way. And so I think that, you know, sometimes you see these uh, sort of glimmers of more constructive things. You see a time where a state level candidate, especially governors can do this from time to time, zeroes in on an issue that hasn't yet been nationalized. But, you know, part of the reason our politics have become so nasty is because they become so top down. And I don't think state politics have escaped this, you know, um, in state legislators. Even, in, even like, in a state where they don't yeah. have that that same, I mean, again, I, I talk about mm-hmm. North Carolina too much, but I have to because I'm here. I, I'm in a state where twice Donald Trump carried the state and both times a Democrat won the governor's mansion in, on the same ballot, um, I think one of only two governors, Democrats, who want to win statewide on the same ballot that um, that that Trump went, won on. So it's I see it as that's why I asked the question, and I wonder how much yeah. being face to face with these candidates makes them behave more. Or or in Virginia, do they not get out and talk to to voters face to face? Yeah, uh, <laughs> when they're running yeah. for governor at all. <laughs> 
It's a it's an interesting situation um, because you know of so if you think about the three levels beneath the presidency that are the most powerful Senate House and governor. The governor candidates do have the most leeway. If you look at those results, like you're saying in North Carolina, you do get those split results more. You do get uh, more of those candidates who are able to go and, you know, make a connection with voters or brand themselves differently or have that sort of long career that's helpful. And people do recognize, okay, this is a governor. They're going to fix potholes. You know, they're not going to Washington. They're going to my state capital. So there's a little bit more leeway that happens there. And frankly, that's part of the reason why Virginia is close. It's because Youngkin is able to self-brand in a way that the National Republican Party can't. He's able to say, okay, I'm trying to keep this person at an arm's length, right? Um, but I I mean, I have to tell you, I, I live in California now, and we just went through a recall election. And it was a, it was a very interesting situation because at the beginning of the recall, it looked close. And then Gavin Newsom, you know, the current Democratic governor said, "Okay, if I lose, you're going to get Larry Elder. Larry Elder is exactly like Trump. And then the Democrats got engaged and it was basically a repeat of the 2020 result. It was it was this situation where in a state election where there are so many issues that are, you know, different from California anywhere else uh, than anywhere else. You know, you have wildfires, you have budget issues that are are different here. Uh, you had just a replay of the national results. Um, and, you know, depending on your your perspective, maybe you think that's a good thing, maybe you think that's a bad thing. But my, my point is, is that it's so easy for uh, national politics just to to shape everything. And it's just hard for candidates to get out of that box. Are there any undecided voters left? I mean, I, I, I'm asking you obviously about Virginia, but but about yeah. the whole country because you don't you clearly report on more yeah. than just Virginia. So, are there really right. uh, when when we hear the word in de- the term independent, um, and I know there's been a lot of arguing about this. Um, it, when we hear the term independent, I don't believe that people who identify as independent are actually moderates. A lot of times, mm-hmm. those people who are independent are further right than the Republican Party. Um, They don't think the Republicans are far enough right for them, or they don't think the Democrats are far enough left for them. So uh, independent doesn't mean moderate. So I ask, are there moderate voters left still? Are there still people in Virginia or in California or anywhere in the country who are sitting there and, and deliberately making a decision based on who they think will be better? Or have we just gotten to a place where we are tribal and we're going to choose who our t- we're going to wear our jersey and show up and, and turn out is, is the key? Oh, well, first optimistic note will hit. Uh, there are swing voters. Hey, there are people good. who, yeah, <laughs> um, who are willing to decide. Uh, and I would think of them as sort of being in a couple camps. There are true swing voters who oftentimes are less tuned into the news. They're not, you know, political junkies. They're normal people living their lives who, when an election rolls around, they say, okay, I got to figure out some stuff. I got to figure out who to decide. I'm not really on the red team or the blue team. I got to figure this out. And that is a pivotal group of voters. There's a second group also that I would say are cross-pressured voters. They're voters who maybe have had strong partisan loyalties in the past, but are looking at the ground changing underneath of them and are sort of reevaluating. And you can see these voters on the left 
and on the right. Uh, you can see them amongst, uh, you could call them populist Republicans. These are uh, voters that Obama won, uh, that oftentimes they're, you know, uh, working class. Sometimes they're white, sometimes they're, you know, not. But there's a segment of the Republican electorate that used to be sort of union Democrats who don't like sort of, you know, uh, top-down, supply-side economics, but do like where Republicans are on cultural issues. There's cross-pressured Democrats as well, people who say, oh, you know, I really don't want my taxes to go up, but I think that the Democrats are right when they talk about issues of race or issues of abortion, and they feel cross-pressured and they've been moving left. So you have sort of these distinct groups. It's not just people who are okay, I'm moderate, I'm deciding at the end. You have blocks that are moving between parties because those parties are moving, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, but you've also, interestingly, because you've done some work and talked and written some about the secession uh, movements (laughs) in the country. I mean, obviously, hopefully they're not going to happen, but there's been more talk in the past uh, year or so that I think I've seen in my lifetime of people thinking, I think, what, 50% of of Trump voting Republicans uh, believe that we should separate the country into uh, half <laughs> into by ideology, and I don't think it's as high with Democrats, but it's high enough to freak me out. I think it's in the 40s um, amongst Democrats who feel the same way. It sounds like what you just said would suggest that we couldn't really— we couldn't really split ourselves into two camps anyway if we wanted to because a lot of people don't really fit into either one very neatly. Um, so what the fuck is going on, David? <laughs> like, right. why, why, do so, we think we're, why do we think we're divided in half <laughs> if we're not really? Yeah, yeah. So the secession numbers you named are just wild. I've got a couple of them here. So in the southern United States— 66% of Republicans say, you know, oh, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea for us to have uh, our own region break off and you know what leave happened and last move time elsewhere. It's wild because like you're saying, it's Democrats too, because in, in the Pacific region, in California, Oregon, and Washington, it's half of Democrats who say, 47% to be exact, who say, you know what, maybe it would be a good idea if we just had our own place and we just had our own whole situation. But of that, and but I, those numbers, yeah. don't they suggest that perhaps that 40% of Democrats are the 40% of Democrats who do who ideologically are aligned with the left all the time. And perhaps there's 60% who maybe like me, I mean, everybody knows my biases here. I I align with Democrats on a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of shit that I wish we'd get our house in order on. So I don't want to secede because I'd be in a, you know, and and perhaps there are Republicans who are that way too. Whose fault is it that, that people think that they are, they have to vote for Glenn Youngkin because Glenn Youngkin's the one that's going to keep critical race theory out of my schools. Meanwhile, they also yeah. know that perhaps his economic policies won't help me. Um, but I'm going to like we're we're clearly choosing our our team based on only half of the team's message, right? Yeah. We like the Democrats because we like it? their it's... offense, but their defense sucks. But we like their offense more, so we're going to be Democrats. You know. <laughs> Yeah, who, whose fault is it is is a fascinating question. Um, I have a couple thoughts on it. To some extent, it is the politicians. One thing that we've learned is that, you know, if you're a normal voter, 
you don't think about politics all the time. You don't think, you know, you aren't following every up and down of Congress. You figure out who you align with more, and oftentimes you trust those people. So when someone who's a Democrat or Republican says, this election has existential stakes, this is, you know, something where, you know, our lives and our, you know, world is going to be uh, totally taken apart if the other side wins, the voters believe them. They, they've got other things that they're doing in their life. They're not, you know, studying up and saying, well, maybe it's, you know, that they believe the people they trust who are aligned with them and in their party. So, so to some degree, this is the fault of politicians who, you know, use escalating rhetoric. Um, you know, and it's, it's to some degree, it's a little bit of a reflection of reality. And I want to be careful when I say this, um, because there are big differences between what Republicans and Democrats do in office. Um, there are big differences in, you know, what they want to try to do. And so I think to some degree, like the 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 hair on fire, everything, the world is going to end if the other side wins. Uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think that that's that's always warranted, but, but there it's are effective. real differences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there right. are real differences, though. So if we're, if we're thinking about like, you know, OK, how we bring down the temperature. Another good question is what's the right temperature to have our politics at, like there, there are. Can there we turn are it down to one? I would be happy to turn it down <laughs> to one. <laughs> I mean, ironically, yeah. a lot of the things that heat people up the most um, are are usually the things that at least Congress doesn't have any say in in the first place. You know, I mean, yeah. whether it be critical yeah. race theory fears or um, or social, a lot of social issues. These are rarely things yeah. that Congress has much of a role in. They don't have a role. The federal government doesn't have a role in what is taught in schools. Um, they don't, shouldn't have a role in who marries who. Um, those are usually state-level issues. And if they do go federal, it's a Supreme Court thing. Um, and they solve it the way they should. Um, but those are the th the things that people don't pay attention. Those are the things that get people heated are the social issues. Yeah. And the things that don't seem to get people heated are tend to be the things that have the most impact on their lives, like the money and politics thing, because it's boring, nobody wants to talk about it, or gerrymandering, it's boring, nobody wants to talk about it, or, or tax policy. Um, it's yeah. complicated, and all I want to hear is that my taxes are going down. So is, is it just a, the fact that we now live in 2021 in an echo chamber, and uh, both the media and politicians are going to squeak their wheels the loudest to hopefully get that grease. Um, and, and we're just screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, a couple, a couple things, uh, on this, I think that one of the developments you're, you're exactly right is that a lot of the developments that are dividing people, uh, are not things that have political solutions. One of the reasons our politics is so overheated is because the cultural battle lines are increasingly lining up with the political battle lines, things that are fraught, race, religion, people's, you know, perception of where they are, you know, in terms of income and class, uh, educational levels, what kind of job, um, you know, it's a lot of politics is organized by who you dislike as much as it's, as it's organized by, you know, what you want from your government. Uh, one thing I, I found this, uh, I was, I was looking back on this data and I actually thought about this podcast, uh, you know, let me, let me pull it up real quick here. But 
One thing that you notice is that Republicans and Democrats stereotype each other in this completely <laughs> wild and different way. If you ask Democratic voters, okay, what percentage of Republicans are over age 65? What percent of Republicans are hyper-wealthy? What percent of Republicans are evangelicals? They always overestimate it. If you ask, you know, Republicans, okay, what percent of Democrats are atheists? What percent of Democrats are LGBT? What percent of Democrats are, and you can go down the line, they always overestimate it. So in terms of- And both sides, by the way, think the other side's evil as hell. Right. Oh, Hates yeah. America yeah. wants yeah. to do wants to like actively do things to destroy us. That's that's obviously the motivation yeah. of both sides to hurt us, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That that's what that's what people see and that's what people uh, think uh when you have these wide cultural chasms. In terms of what we can do, I mean, I have a my just two or three things that I think of. Um one is people can get out more. Um, and actually, and not not just see people who are different from them from three blocks away and count that as, you know, uh, being somewhere else and, or and, you know, seeing the other side of America, but have conversations that actually matter. One interesting thing is that uh, some of the social science research has found that if you have a conversation that has sort of an empathetic part to it, where people are talking about ways in which they've struggled, they're more likely to be open to sort of changing their opinion and thinking through something in a way that's different from somebody else. I've noticed in my own work with some survey data I found is that if you're a Republican, who has friends who are Democrats, you're less likely to believe a conspiracy theory than a Republican who only has friends who are Republicans. And the same goes Mm -hmm. on the left too. If you're a Democrat who has Republican friends, you're, you know, you might push back on the conspiracy theory more. If you're a Democrat that only lives in your bubble, you're more likely to believe some wild conspiracy about the other side. That's why my Democrat friends hate me because I have Republican friends and they think I'm (laughs) crazy for doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, it's it's wild. It's it's that exposure is. I love uh, the I love the that, concrete. Helpful, you know, and I, I have to say, in in the year, and I'll, I'll hope I hope you come back to this at the end um, when I ask the last question. But um, I don't think I have heard anybody in the year and a half plus that we've been doing this show actually have a concrete solution or an idea. Usually, it, well, it's usually, you know, we just need to listen more. We need to be open-minded. I mean, people have better answers to that. But to actually go out, get out of the house, and have conversations, I appreciate that there's actually an Thanks. active thing we can do. Um, I, I, we did get a lot of questions in for you, um, but I have run my mouth longer. Um, well, it's, I was going to say longer than usual, but I've run it all the time. So we won't be able to get to too many of them. Um, but I want to get at least to this one. Um, Nolan from South Boston, Virginia. Uh, Rural voters have lost a lot of power in our state. Is there any chance of coming back? I'm assuming he's asking, is there any chance that rural voters will get power back? South Boston, pretty rural, kind of-ish. Yeah, I mean, Massachusetts is a state that's, uh, you said South Boston? No, I said South South Boston, Boston, Virginia. Virginia. South Boston, Virginia. Oh, okay. So so an actual rural I was like, how is South Boston rural? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, I think this opportunity, if you're politically aligned with Youngkin, is probably the best opportunity for Republicans to uh, gain power, uh, you know, and 
a decade in uh, the state level at Virginia. Uh, one thing to think about, though, and this is this is something else I was thinking about when I was just reading the title of this show, is that not all power is in the state. I think one thing that can happen that can sort of take uh, some of the pressure down and take the temperature down in our politics is if somebody gets involved locally and picks one thing that they want to change and one thing that's in their community. Um, I obviously want people to read about national politics because I, I write about <laughs> it for the Washington Post. But I think, you know, if you if you spend an hour each week going to a local meeting that has to do with what's happening in your town, in your city, something in your school board, you're going to have more accumulating power if you did that for, you know, half an hour to an hour a week. That's going to give you more of a say necessarily than, you know, clicking around on polling averages for an extra hour. As much as I love polling averages and co have contributed to that world, there's there's different levels You're that part you of the problem, damn it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nolan, Halifax County Commissioner Commission is calling you, according to, to David here. Um, Jill from San Jose. Are we at risk of heading towards a civil war? I'm going to I'm going to assume uh, that's hyperbolic, but I mean let's let's hope Jill God please that we're not actually at the risk of heading towards a civil war. I'm going to change your question yeah. and and ask David how close we are towards becoming more uh, are we closer to fighting harder or are we is there a turnaround at any point where we, where it cools off? Yeah. If I had to guess, uh, fighting harder, um, yeah, you know, right. one thing to keep in mind when you're you're looking at that data about, you know, people want to secede, some of that is there's a, you know, fancy technical term for it called expressive responding, which is basically that if you give a Republican or a Democrat in a poll the chance to stick it to the other side, no matter how crazy your question is, they're going to stick it to the other side, right? So it's not necessarily true that 66% of Southern Republicans or 47% of Pacific Northwest Democrats, you know, have guns and are ready to, you know, take them out and actually fight a war. Some of that is going to be expressive. I would say we're at a very fragile moment. Um, because of what happened on January 6th, because of the whole Capitol insurrection and because of, you know, Trump continuing to claim falsely that he won the 2020 election. Uh, there's a lot of room for things to go off uh, the rails uh, pretty fast in the next couple of elections. So, you know, back to pessimism, David. Uh, I, I think I think everybody, like they said in Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. Like this is going to be this is going to be quite a thing in the next couple of years. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to do one more because I, I I find it yeah. fascinating. Um, Tim from Alexandria, Virginia, must not have heard every episode of this podcast because I've answered it a few times. But I'm going to ask the expert. Um, Tim asks David, I see Yunkin signs everywhere. Is that a good tell for candidate support? No, um, <laughs> that's, I, I completely understand it because people see the signs, they see them everywhere. It's something that they, you know, uh, think, oh man, it must happen. It's, it's very concrete. It's visual. Um, no, you're, you're better off looking at the polling, at what candidates, uh, do, um, you know, candidates themselves, uh, will even encourage their supporters to get more yard signs, different amounts of yard signs will be in different places. You, you've got better indicators that are free public and online for where this race is going. And it's tight. So if you care, you should vote. And Tim, if you live in Alexandra, then I imagine that 
there are more Yunkin signs than there are Yunkin voters um, in that particular part of the state. I, I mean, <laughs> as a former candidate myself, I kind of get it. When I started running, I wanted signs and my, all my campaign people said nobody votes based on a in sign stop caring. The only people who care about the signs are the candidate. And I was like, that's stupid. They mean so much. And we spend a lot of money on signs. And lo and behold, it didn't mean a damn thing. And every time I see a, a corner that's got 10, 20 of the same sign on the corner, I think I'm clearly close to where this particular candidate drives every day <laughs> because their campaign like staff. So Tim, maybe you live near where um, <laughs> Yunkin actually drives and his campaign team has has very carefully placed those signs there so he can see them on his way to the office every single day. Um, David Byler, uh, thank you very much um, for enlightening me on this whole uh, Virginia thing, um, but also for a, a, a word of the week, if not the month for me, expressive responding. I am fascinated by it because I knew there had to be a term for something like that. And I'm thrilled that you told us about it. So express, is it respect, expressive responding or expressive response? What'd you call it? Yeah, either you one. can say it, it's either one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I feel so much smarter now. I hope that's on a Trivial Pursuit quiz or a New York t- or a crossword puzzle or something <laughs> at some point. Um, you can read uh, all of David's writing about the Virginia race up at least until Tuesday and and probably several days beyond the the. Uh, after effects, the aftermath of the Virginia election mm-hmm. this coming Tuesday. You can read all of his uh, bylines um, in the Washington Post and also a whole bunch of really fun, nerdy stuff that I like um, with data analysis. And um, he does a lot of stuff on demographics. I'm sure you're going to be getting into gerrymandering. Maybe we'll have you um, come back and talk about my least favorite thing on the planet, uh, gerrymandering, mm-hmm. uh, especially when my state somehow miraculously gerrymanders our new district as well um, <laughs> because it's coming. So please come back and, um, and, and help, talk, help talk me off the ledge with that. Um, but until then, David, how the heck are we going to get along? Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. How are we going to get along? Um, yeah, I think care about your local area. You know, don't just focus on national politics because you can do something. You are not powerless when the other party wins. You can improve your life and your world. I would say get out, talk to people and have real conversations with them um, that, you know, get deep in there because that's how they're going to build empathy for you and you're going to build empathy for them. Um, And I think, you know, uh, just find if if you can find some sort of source of meaning in your life that's outside of politics, whatever that looks like for you, I think that's good because we live in a 50-50 country and somebody you don't like is going to be governing you half the time. uh, And that's just the reality of our world.